Welcome to the Propaganda Report. This is Monica Perez here with my co-host, Brad Binkley. Today, we have with us a guest whose excellent research and writing I've been following for at least a decade. He is the author of More Guns, Less Crime, a book I've referred to many, many times for fact-based assessments of gun crime and gun policy, as well as gun control myths, how politicians, the media, and botched studies have twisted the facts on gun control. But he is also an activist, a political advisor, and the founder of the Crime Prevention Research Center. He has a long history in academia and as an economist, and his scholarship spans a range of important and controversial topics, including a favorite of ours, election results. So without further ado, it is our honor to welcome Mr. John Lott. Hello, John. Well, uh, thanks, Monica and Brad, for having me on. I appreciate it. Well, you have, I was really thrilled to talk to you. I've been following your work for years and you do have amazing credentials and your research is thorough and transparent. Yet if someone were to do like a cursory Google search, they get a lot of smear stuff, a lot of hit stuff. Could you tell us a little bit about your, just to set people straight, like how you approach this? I mean, the I immediately always think of your approach like Thomas Sowell. It's just all about the data. And I knew he would love you. And I found lots of quotes of him loving you. So I just thought maybe you just touch a little bit about, you know, what you think is going on there, your your approach and then how you're received. Right. Well, I just so, you know, Tom was a professor of mine at UCLA. Uh, He was probably one of the hardest professors I've ever had. Uh, Took him for graduate history of thought when I was an undergraduate uh, the first week, there were maybe about 23 students in the class. By the end of the second week, there were three of us. And uh, he'd give us five to 700 pages to read each week. Uh, and then it was like a final exam each week. He would stand in front of one person's desk for an hour because it was a three-hour class one day a week and ask you questions. He didn't lecture. And then you know, you could only say you don't know so many times in the you know class. And so I had, I had no idea. And I only looked up. I said, this guy really smacks of like Thomas Sowell's approach. I'm shocked that he was your professor, but finished. I'm sorry. So, you know, anyway, would he would you'd be reading Adam Smith. Uh, you'd read Marx. You'd read uh, David Ricardo. He didn't teach it as just a history class at all. He taught it as an economics class. You know, what did they get right? What did they get wrong? You know, what are the logical inconsistencies in what they were writing? And uh, I think I ended up spending about four or five days every week just studying for his class. And um, so it was really, it was it was an interesting time, and I was fortunate to get him there. I was there right before he left to go to Hoover at Stanford. Was was that an undergrad class? No, no, it was a graduate. It was yeah, a, okay. It was a graduate class, but I I was a little bit precocious. I was taking a lot of graduate classes as an undergraduate. I see that you have the whole spectrum of degrees all the way up to PhD, and that it was mostly, if not all, at US at UCLA. So I just wasn't sure what time frame. Right. So interesting. Well, really, you, you, I'm sure, do him very proud. So, okay, I, I actually, when I, I've done fair amount of 
just trying to argue, trying to convince people, I have a radio show, we have a podcast. And it's very hard. Some things are very hard to find research and facts on, especially gun statistics. And I'm actually worried that they there's like, well, that's because the CDC isn't allowed to do research on it. But of course, they would come about it all wrong. And uh, so I find you to be one of the few sources who really has a lot of stats on that. And I liked your most recent article because it was one of the things that I've touched on a lot is that you the gun stats always kind of perforce don't include deterrence because nobody ever reports that nobody's getting arrested for it. And then something else I heard you say is what if they call talk about gun homicides? The defensive ones are justifiable homicides, which actually prevented murder, yet they get clumped into the same boat. So I thought maybe you could talk a little bit about about why we don't hear about that and how it really skews the perception or why it what the correct perception is of gun violence and the and the place of guns in society. Right. So in the research that you're talking about, we looked at just the top five newspapers uh, just to get an idea how they cover gun crimes versus defensive gun uses. And uh, if you add up the New York Times, Los Angeles Times, Washington Post, USA Today, and the Wall Street Journal combined together up through August of this year, they had a total of 10 stories which were defensive gun uses that had been successful. By contrast, they had 2,762 gun crime stories where somebody was either murdered or wounded in a gun crime that was there. So, you know, most people would go and, and, you know, they're well-informed. And of course, then if you go and you look at CNN, MSNBC, ABC, NBC, CBS, the NewsHour, they had a total defensive gun use stories of zero between all those. So somebody could consider themselves to be a fairly knowledgeable person that keeps up with the news. And they would come away with the impression that, Defensive gun uses are essentially non-existent, and uh, you know gun crimes are rampant. So I'm not surprised that anybody who would be knowledgeable in that way would think that uh, you know if we could only get rid of the guns, uh, we would make people a lot safer. And uh, so some of the things we point out, if you look at all the news stories you can find, uh, there are about a thousand news stories on defensive gun uses up through uh, August. But just to give you an idea of kind of how what's newsworthy differs from uh, from what actually happens. You know, uh, a murder is much more newsworthy than a wounding. And a wounding is much more newsworthy than let's say a woman who brandishes a gun and would-be attacker runs away, no shots are fired, no dead body on the ground, you're not even sure what crime would have been committed. Uh, And so, you know, it's understandable why murder gets more news coverage than the others. But if you go through those thousand defensive gun use stories, and by the way, the vast majority of the coverage is in small local media markets around the country, even though the vast majority of crime, and we believe the vast majority of defensive gun uses occur where the crimes are, which is in more urban areas. Uh, Most of the news stories involve cases where somebody's been killed. Close behind is cases where somebody's been wounded. 
And only about 4% of the news stories on defensive gun uses involve a case where somebody brandished a gun. And most of those are pretty unusual in the sense that the criminal was held at gunpoint until the police arrived. If you look at the academic work in this area, about 95% of defensive gun uses, we believe, involve cases where brandishing occurs. So it's like kind of the opposite uh, there. Um, and, you know, you, you look at these things and it's, it's understandable. You know, how do we know uh, the rate that people report crimes to police, for example? How do we know that a little bit less than half of rapes are reported to police? Well, we know crimes that report to police, but then we have these surveys that go and try to figure out how many people have been raped or how many people have been assaulted or what have you. And what, and what you find there uh, is that when you compare that to surveys on defensive gun uses, that people actually appear to use guns defensively to stop crimes about five times more frequently than they use to commit crimes. But yet, you would never know that if you know, you're a well-read person who follows the news carefully, particularly if you're in a major urban market. Yeah, you have a question? Yeah, I mean, every single one of those defensive uses of weapons would be eliminated if there were a gun ban and presumably none of the of the aggressive right. criminal uses. And of course, or, or the criminal fuel. uses would increase, probably. Yeah. So here's the deal. And it's a simple point to make. And that is and a question I often ask. Name me one place in the world that's banned either all guns or all handguns and seen murder rates go down. Every single time that either all guns or all handguns have been banned, murder rates go up, often by three, four, five, sixfold when that occurs. You know, we saw increases in Chicago and Washington, D.C. in the United States when handguns were banned. Gun control uh, supporters will say, well, that wasn't a fair test because unless you, you go and ban guns every place, people can go and get guns from the rest of Illinois or Indiana or Maryland or Virginia. That doesn't explain why it went up. It may explain why it didn't go down as they were predicting it was gonna go down, but it doesn't explain the big increases. And beyond that, you can look at nations around the world that have banned all guns in their, in their country, and yet you still see murder rates go up, or even, even better, island nations, which you think would be kind of the perfect experiment. There's no real neighbor to go and blame. And yet, whether you look at Jamaica or Ireland or the UK, uh, you see large increases in murders and homicides occurring after bans. And, and your point is exactly right, that when you see those types of bans, you have to ask yourself, who's most likely to obey the law? If you're primarily taking guns away from the most law-abiding good citizens relative to the criminals, I mean, you may take some guns away from criminals, but if you primarily disarm the law-abiding citizens, as you say, you make it relatively easier for the criminals to go and commit crimes. You know, one thing I don't think people appreciate is how easy it is for criminals to go and get guns. You know, so you, a major source of illegal guns in the United States are drug dealers. Drug dealers have guns. It's not like a drug dealer can go to the police and say this other gang stole our drugs, can you help us get them back? They have to go and set up their own little militaries to go and protect that extremely valuable property that they have. And if they can make money 
selling drugs, you know, and they can make money selling guns, they're going to be doing both of those things. If I could click my fingers and cause all guns in the United States to disappear and all illegal drugs, how long do you think it would be before illegal drugs start coming back into the United States? <laughs> if you're in El Paso, 20 minutes, right. something like that. But how long would it be before they bring in the weapons in order to go and protect that extremely valuable property that they have? They'd be bringing them in at the same time. And so, you know, you look around the world and we see the resources and efforts we've spent to try to keep illegal drugs from coming into the country here in the United States. Other countries do the same thing. But there's a reason why when you've had these bans, they haven't been successful. And significantly reducing uh, the guns that criminals have. They actually, as you say, reduce it for law-abiding citizens relative to criminals. And just one last point, and that is, it doesn't just apply to bans at this point. You have to be careful that gun control regulations generally don't disarm law-abiding citizens relative to criminals, or you'll get the exact same result that you were pointing to a minute ago. I have a lot of questions about what or points to make and um, want to get your views on some of the things that you just said. One is that I actually have a few European friends and I was really surprised. Separate people don't know each other, but I've talked to and I'm surprised at how they think they kind of think a lot more about street crime, like they worry about street crime. And my conclusion, I couldn't really draw a line. I don't do research like you, but it was that. It's not so much. So I don't worry about that all the time, but I don't carry a gun. But the atmosphere, especially when I lived in Atlanta, I lived near Kennesaw. Like I just I knew that there was a big deterrent effect. And I and I concluded that it had something to do with the fact that there's just I was never really afraid of street crime. And I feel like it doesn't just protect the people who are carrying weapons, but the expectation of the criminals and all sorts of crimes that they may be running into somebody who's armed and that could uh, contribute to increases of crime not just murder, but all across the board. Right. So a couple points to make here. One is that um, the United States has a relatively low violent crime rate compared to most European countries, for example. A lot of European countries, including Australia and Canada and places like that, have violent crime rates. They're either 50% or 100% higher than the violent crime rate in the United States. People focus on murders but one thing you have to notice with murders is that the United States is fairly unique in terms of how geographically concentrated our murders are compared to other countries. Over half the murders in the United States occur in just 2% of the counties. So that's 60 of the 3,140 counties account for over half the murders. And if you ever have what's called a murder map, which shows where the murders are in those counties, you'll find almost two thirds of the murders in those counties occur within 10 block areas. So murders are extremely heavily concentrated. And a lot of that has to do with drug gangs uh, fighting each other over drug turf. Uh, and we have a worse drug gang problem, but, uh, but other countries uh, have much higher overall violent crime rates, assault, robbery, uh, rape, uh, just by the way, incidentally, 92% of violent crimes in the United States don't involve guns. Okay. And, you know, that's true in other countries too. Uh, and so, you know, uh, uh, 
people focus on murders, and I think it kind of gives them kind of a misimpression. I'll mention one other thing that I think directly fits in with your point that you're raising. Compare burglary rates across countries. Uh, just We have it for a lot, lots of countries, but just compare the UK versus the United States. The burglary rate in the UK is about twice the burglary rate in the United States. And we have something called hot burglaries. These are burglaries that occur while the residents are in the dwelling. In the UK, the hot burglary rate is almost 60%. In the United States, the hot burglary rate is 13%. There's surveys of burglars in these different countries that ask them, how long do you spend casing a home? Why do you spend the amount of time you do casing a home? In the United States, burglars spend about twice as long casing a home before they break in compared to their UK counterparts. When asked why, it's exactly your point. They say, we're worried about getting shot. And so the one way to protect yourself from getting shot is to look carefully to make sure nobody's home, because if nobody's home, then you're not going to get shot. Whereas in the UK, they don't really have to worry about that because the people in the homes really can't defend themselves and aren't allowed. Yeah, I would add about the drug guys using guns to defend themselves or to uh, ensure their transactions to get their contracts met. They don't. Yes, they can't use cops, but they also don't have jails. So any minor infraction could meet the death penalty because there's nothing much else you can do. All you can do is deter people from breaking your contracts in the future by killing the guys who break them or maybe break their legs or whatever. But it could just to the point of how we have a very high murder rate, but it's almost not exclusively, but majority in this um, black market operation. So it's counted as a murder, but it, it isn't something that really should scare the people that the propaganda is used. Those statistics. Right, well, it's, I mean, most of us aren't going to be fighting over drug turf and, you have, <laughs> right. and uh, you know, you'll have bystanders get a shot. Whenever you hear about these drive by shootings where a young kid gets killed, those invariably involve drug gangs shooting at each other over drug turf that's there. And, um, you know, it's just the media doesn't kind of draw that connection for people. Uh, but that's usually what you should think about when you hear that type of tragic story occurring. Well, one thing that I often cite, the Second Amendment is the Second Amendment. It's it's constitutional. It affects the whole country to the extent that. I mean, we could argue the point, but that the Bill of Rights doesn't only pertains to the federal government, then. You can say, OK, if you want to have gun laws, then move to California or whatever, like you you or m- make it happen in your locality. And the argument is and I think a lot of the coverage is put on events that cross borders, whatever the argument is, these fluid borders mean that your laws affect me. But it sounds like the statistics in an island nation, for example, just to, that that's not really true. Right. Well, I mean, look at something like uh, mass public shootings. Uh, Over the last 25 years, I know of one mass public shooting where somebody obtained the gun outside of the state where the attack occurred. Uh, It just doesn't happen. You know, and, you know, uh, so, you know, given that so many of these laws are kind of instigated by, uh, you know, mass public shootings. you know, it's 
whatever they think will work there, and we can talk about that, uh, they should be able to obtain that, you would think, just by passing the laws in their own state. I, I have a question about that. They, I noticed maybe the statistics were skewed, but that under George W. Bush and Obama, this mass shootings, maybe it's the coverage or I don't know what, but seems to have gone through the roof. And some of the stories, if you ask me, the details of the stories don't always hang together. And I just I wonder if you have an opinion on why that statistic seems to be on the rise. Is it genuine? Do you think it's there are policies that are very stupid that contribute to that or media coverage that's very skewed? But or maybe maybe I'm wrong. Maybe the mass shooting that there are they aren't up. They just seem to be up. OK, so there's just so you know, there's a couple different types of t- statistics out there. There's one called mass public shootings and the other one's called mass shootings, mass public shootings deal with the type of thing that get our attention in the news, you know, shooting at a school or a mall or a movie theater where the entire point of the attack was simply to kill and maim as many people as possible. Usually the person's trying to commit suicide, about 75% of the time people die in those attacks. And then you have mass shootings, and those are any time four people have been shot, basically, in any type of thing. And the vast majority of those are drug gangs fighting against each other over drug turf. So when you go and you hear the thing that there's been, you know, 500 mass shootings this year, uh, that's what's happening. You basically have a lot of drug gang fights that are going on, but they blend those two types of things together often in the news media. And there's a place called the Gun Violence Archive, which I think kind of purposely kind of blends those together uh, because, you know, in any case, so, um, uh, okay, okay, now the changes over time, if you look over a few decades from the 80s, the 90s, 2010, and through most of this last decade, uh, things were fairly flat in terms of the number of mass public shootings. Uh, There was a report that came out from the FBI, they started putting together cases called active shooting cases. And those involve anything from a gun being fired in public and nobody shot all the way up to a mass public shooting, all of them public shootings not involving some other type of crime. Um, and they their first report came out in 2014, right before the general elections. Then. And it was a horribly done report. Um, I was just tr- working in the Department of Justice up until January. And there's just so many errors with this. So I'll give you one example. The first report that they had looked at from 2000 through 2013, and they used Google news searches to put this together. Now, the problem, you you probably know this. I've tried that. It doesn't. Well, here's the problem. Here's the problem. And that is, if you're talking about a mass public shooting where like eight people have been killed, you know, a week afterwards, you may get 800 news stories. Five years from now, you still may get 600 news stories. 20 years from now, you're still going to find news stories about it, okay? The problem is, is that stories fall out over time in Google News Search. And when you're dealing with something where a gun's been fired in public and nobody's been shot, you know, you're lucky to get one news story on that. You know, maybe you'll get a news story on that a month or a year after it happens. But five years after it happens, there's a good chance that that story is not going to be found. And 10 years for almost sure, you're not going to find it. 
And so what happens is, is uh, I, I guess I can't remember exactly, but it's like 40% or so of their cases involve active shooting cases where either nobody was shot or one person wounded. So these are, and, and then almost all of those were just in the last few years of their sample. So it's purely an artifact. You know, you think, I mean, you, I'm sure you know what Nexus and Lexus is. You would think, come on guys, let's use like a real computerized news base, which doesn't lose stories like that over or time. select. I mean, that's the big problem with the search is that they select. You can go to a different search engine and get a very different result. Like, yeah. how is that? You know, they can't you can't use that for accurate statistical trends. So it's an artifact of how they put together. And there are other errors like uh, they literally miss like 20 mass public shootings towards the beginning of their period. Um, and, uh, you know, and so you miss cases at the beginning, you have a artifact of how you collect them, which over represents at the end compared to the beginning, all those work towards this increase over time that you were referring to. I can only guess maybe that you were thinking or reading about the FBI, uh, search that was there, you know, as the claim for that thing, who knows what, what I just, I've seen the stat a few times. What is it? The search problems seem intentional to me, but to try and get the numbers that they they want to use. Well, I have to tell you, uh, working in uh, the Department of Justice this last year pretty much confirmed all my worst fears. Uh, I worked in the federal government in the 1980s. I was chief economist for the U.S. Sentencing Commission. And then more recently, I was uh senior advisor for research and statistics in the Department of Justice in a couple divisions. And, um, uh, you know, I know back in the 80s, most of the civil servants people were Democrats, but you could talk to them. And if there were errors in the data, they would go and fix them. I had people this time where I would go and point out errors in the data. And twice, when I was talking to people, they said, well, I'm a Democrat. I said, well, <laughs> oh and, that, and that has what to do with this? I mean, I'm thinking to myself, so I should just respond, say I'm a Republican, and then we'll just trade that back and forth a few times. Either I'd say either it's right or it's wrong. And I, even when I could get them to agree that there were mistakes, they would refuse to fix them now. I, if you have like, and the thing is, I'm completely, conv- you know, you ask yourself, how is it possible that the FBI can spy on a presidential campaign without having leaks or whistleblowers? And the simple reason is everybody agreed with each other politically. And I, I can only talk about the data people at the FBI because uh, they're the only ones I really had contact with, but I'm convinced they're as ideologically you know, pure as you know, people who are running the top of the FBI. Um, if you have like four or five minutes, I can give you one story, kind of an example, and it fits in with something we were talking about before we started. And that is uh, one of the reasons why I took the job in Washington was I wanted to get data on errors in the background check system. Uh, I overwhelmingly believe that uh, before I went there that, uh, you know, we hear now that there are 3.8 million prohibited people that have been stopped from buying guns because of background checks. And that's simply false. What they should say is there have been 3.8 million initial denials. 
And virtually all of those, something like 99% of those are mistakes. It's one thing to stop a felon from buying a gun. It's another thing to stop somebody simply because they have a name similar to a felon from buying a gun. And the errors disproportionately occur to minority males. And the reason is fairly simple. When you're looking at roughly phonetically similar names and similar birthdays, people have names similar to others in their racial groups. Hispanics have names similar to other Hispanics. Blacks tend to have names similar to other Blacks. I got stopped from getting on planes many times because there was somebody with my name, Monica Perez, a couple of years difference. You could see there's a different date of birth. I, right. I missed planes. They would detain me. Finally, some nice person, some guy said, if there is any other name you can travel under, this is not going to stop happening you know to what? you. There's a fun, uh, uh, just as an aside, there's a funny story. Uh, uh, Tom McClintock, congressman from California, uh, he ran into the same problems for years and uh, he tried to get it fixed. Was this his black box? Uh, nobody could fix it. So finally, a federal agent pulled him aside and they say, look, when you buy your airplane tickets, don't buy it as Thomas M. McClintock. Buy it as T. Michael McClintock. Why don't you try that? And so he started buying his uh, airplane tickets like that and it worked. Yeah, I went back to my maiden name. Yeah, so, yeah. Like just, I was in Texas. I was just ne never going to change. But right. yes, yeah, so I can understand, totally validate what you're saying. It really happens. So, um, and, you know, just as an example, 33% of black males have felony records. So, you know, they're prohibited from buying a gun. But whose names are their names most likely to be confused with? Other law-abiding good black males who want to go and buy a gun to protect themselves and their families. So I don't, I don't know if you've ever bought a gun, but when you go and buy a gun, you fill out something out of 4473, where you put down your name, your address, your birthday, your race, your eye color, your social security number. And you think they're using all that information, but they're not. But the thing is, we know who's denied by race and gender, and we know whose cases are pursued because they've checked the paperwork. And so I just wanted to get that data from the FBI. And so when I went to Washington last year, I uh, talked to the people at the Bureau of Justice Statistics and got them interested in looking at this. And so they contacted the FBI and the FBI said, no, we're not interested in looking at this. And we say, well, it's not your choice to do that. We'd like to look at this data. And they said, well, you know, there's no reason why you want to break something like this down by race and gender. And my response was, you guys break down everything by race and gender. <laughs> what's, what's the deal here? And so anyway, we argued back and forth for a few weeks, and then they just disappeared. One thing you have to understand last year, I, I, on my floor, uh, there was like 350 desks. Uh, on most days, I'd be the only person that would be in the office on my floor because of COVID. You know, everybody was working from home. I hated working from home. And uh, anyway, uh, they uh, so they just disappeared. It's not you send them emails or phone calls and they just wouldn't respond. Anyway, about uh, five weeks later or so, a little bit over four weeks later, uh, the election occurred. And the Thursday after the election, they get back to us finally and say, all right, you're going to have to fill out a FOIA request. So this is this is 
not a, a news media place asking for the information. This is one part of the Department of Justice asking another part of the Department of Justice for this data. And it's the Bureau of Justice Statistics. It's their job to get the data from the FBI. This do you feel like this was totally just because of what you were looking for? That can't yeah, have been sure. standard operating procedure. No, it wasn't. People were uh, flabbergasted. Yeah. Oh and so anyway, but to make it worse, they 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 just didn't end there. They said, uh, but even if you can fill out the four-year request today, we're sure there's no way we're going to be able to finish figuring this out until after January 20th. And <laughs> And we're sure that the Biden administration will not be interested in this type of data. So there's really no reason for you to even look at this. Holy crap. And uh, so anyway, we argued back and forth for a couple of weeks and then they disappeared again on us. And uh, anyway, the Thursday before Thanksgiving, I got a call from Grover Norquist. Uh, He's kind of a conservative muckety-muck in D.C. there. Uh, Grover and I wrote a book together. I've known him pretty well for a long time. And Grover was going to meet with Mark Meadows uh, the next day. And uh, Mark wanted Grover to help him figure out what things could still be done at the Department of Justice before the end of the Trump administration. And so I gave Grover two ideas. One of them was the one I was just talking about. The other one was the FBI mass public, the active shooting reports by the FBI. And so Grover went in, talked to Mark. Mark said he liked my ideas and that on Monday morning, he was going to call up Bill Barr and uh, and uh, tell Barr that there are three tasks that the White House wants them to do. Two of them are mine. So anyway, my understanding is uh, Mark called up Bill on Monday morning. Bill called up the FBI, told him to get in gear and help me out. Uh, Monday afternoon, Politico comes out with a story at the top of their website saying, controversial pro-gun academic joins Department of Justice. So apparently what happened was, as soon as Bill Barr called up the FBI, the FBI ran to their friends in the media to essentially go and complain about me being in the Department of Justice there. And they kind of got what they wanted in terms of a blow up. Uh, I don't I don't know how many emails and phone calls they got. I was told it was a lot. I can just tell you that uh, when I had an op ed uh, in 2018 in the in the New York Times, uh, Bloomberg's groups and others organized like 75,000 emails that they were sent into the New York Times within 24 hours. You know, demanding that they never publish anything by me again. And uh, anyway, so there's a big ruckus for a couple of weeks. Uh, the gun control groups sent in dozen uh, FOIA requests to try to, you know, you know, bury me in paperwork and stuff like that. So anyway, after a few weeks, uh, the FBI finally uh, gets in gear, or I guess it was a little over two weeks gets in gear to help out, start working on uh, at least the one project with the Nick stuff. And uh, they get us the data and there are problems with the data. It just, some things don't add up. 
And uh, we go back and contact the FBI and they say, oh, we're really sorry. We're going to call you. We realized that there were mistakes. We'll fix it and give you the right data. So anyway, uh, you know, this is data they should be able to pull off in an hour. Okay, it's not rocket science data that's going on. No analysis on their part. And so a week goes by, they come back with the data and there are still problems with the data. And and they say, oh, we're really sorry, we'll fix it. Anyway, that keeps going on like four times. And then finally on January 19th, they say, oh, we're really sorry, we'll fix it. And you know, we're out the door the next day at noon and, you know, it dies. So uh, it's just one of one of the stories I can tell you. Well, I the one thing that concerns me is that I don't I know I totally believe you that the Democrats that I'm surprised there are so many Democrats in the rank and file of the FBI, but it doesn't surprise me at all that they shut you down. But I don't really feel like a lot of the Republicans are fighting the good fight. And I know Bill Barr and Jeff Sessions before him. And I, I always kind of think Jeff Sessions has a lot of integrity. I, I don't throw him under the bus, but both of them had kind of wanted to ramp up the background check thing. Did you ever see that? And maybe it was something that because you yeah, well, look, for your time. I mean, Jeff Sessions, one of the big things that he wanted to do was enforce the gun control laws, you know, and particularly item number one for, you know, a couple decades has been the fact that people are being stopped from the NICs, but then not being prosecuted. The thing is, there's a reason why they're not being prosecuted. They're not real cases. Okay. And, you know, uh, and so Sessions, when he got in there, one of his first things was, we're going to increase prosecution. Prosecutions didn't increase. And, you know, it's and uh, the thing is, also, these are like the easiest cases to prosecute. You know, uh, what are you going to do? I forgot I was in jail for five years. (laughs) And, uh, you know, so and the thing is, they have a sworn statement from you where you signed under threat of perjury. Your ID has been checked. Okay, when you tried to go and buy the gun. Um, and so, you know, there's not a lot of room for error. These are incredibly easy things to prosecute. And yet in 2017, uh, there were like 112,000, uh, initial denials there and they had 12 federal prosecutions. They had a few state prosecutions, but they're also rare. And the thing is, even the people they prosecute are not hardened criminals. Usually, uh, probably one of the most egregious cases I came across when I was uh, in Washington was uh, there was a 63 year old man whose wife had gotten some threats at work. She was getting a concealed handgun permit. He decided as a gift, he was gonna go and buy her a handgun. So he went in, tried to buy her a handgun, uh, filled out the paperwork. It turns out uh, that that 43 years earlier, he had gotten into a fist fight with his brother in their front yard. Neighbors had called the police. The police had come and arrested them. Both the brothers had pleaded guilty to domestic misdemeanor violence. And of course, that's uh, a covered offense. You're prohibited from buying a gun. He claims he didn't understand that. Prosecutors said, look, you signed this form saying that you didn't have a prohibited offense like that. 
and penalties perjury, he was convicted, uh, sentenced to three years in prison for perjury. And, uh, you know, that's maybe the most egregious case that I know of, but you have cases that are 20 years or 25 years old types of things. You know, these are people that make mistakes. You know, criminals may be stupid, all right, but they're not so stupid that they go to a place where they know that they're prohibited and that know their right. background check's going to occur. Right. They try to go and buy a gun from them. There are plenty of other places for them to go and obtain a gun. So there's another trend that is widely touted, and maybe it's a maybe it's wrong data, but I don't think so, where there seems to have been a I don't know if it was the major peak in the 90s of crime overall, like all categories. And then it just it plummeted after that. After and that. now it looks like it's ticking up again. And I just didn't I always looked for the connection with I always felt that it's probably a direct result of gun policy. But I wondered if you were aware of those trends and what the reasons might be. Well, murder and violent crime peaked at the end of 1991, if you look at monthly data, kind of around November or so of that year, October. And uh, it fell very quickly during the 1990s. Then it fell for a little bit after 2000 and kind of leveled off. And it's kind of gone up and down a little bit. As you say, over the last year and a half, it looks like it's gone up considerably. Uh, Assaults have gone up. Violent crime as a whole has gone up. Most most violent crimes involve assaults by far, about 60% or so. And, um, you know, uh, it's pretty easy, I think, to explain why you have the drop during the 90s. And that is, there are a few things. One is uh, you had increases in arrest rates and conviction rates, longer prison sentences. And those kind of fed on each other because what happened is you'd have a big increase in the number of police arrests would go up, crime would go down, and then you'd have more police per arrest that you were doing. And so the arrest rates would keep going up and they didn't reduce the number of police. And so, you know, they became more and more productive at reducing that there. There are other things that happen. Uh, One of the things that I think was important was also uh, changes in drug law enforcement. uh, during the Bush administration, one of the things that had happened was they had involved the military in uh, in drug interdiction. And what you had happen there was uh, you had uh, basically only the large cartels were able to bring in significant amounts of drugs into the United States. One of the things that Clinton did was he pretty much eliminated uh, the military's involvement in that. So you had a lot more drugs coming into the country but you had it from a lot more different sources. And what that did was it reduced the profits that they got (laughs) selling the drugs. And as the profits went down, they didn't have the same incentive to go and fight against each other over drug turf as they had had before. And uh, um, so, I mean, I think those are a couple of the major reasons that are there. Uh, You know, I think there's, other things that had other effects, you know, I think concealed carry legislation and stuff, but I don't, I think, you know, I think concealed carry, maybe you can explain about 5% of the change in, uh, in violent crime. I think for uh, law enforcement, generally arrest rates, conviction rates, prison sentences, the death penalty, those explain over 50% of the change that's there. 
So I think that's much more important. That's interesting that the statistics bear out what I always thought was black markets are why it's the black market that creates the violence. It's not drugs. If I mean, CVS isn't full of, you know, shootings all day long. Like it's not drugs. It's the fact that it's black market and the profit incentive for the tighter regulation around the black market that escalates the stakes. And that's theoretically, I think, obvious. But to see that there were statistics that back that up, I say I didn't know that Clinton had done that, but that makes sense to me. And well, you, know, was, you also yeah. look at just uh, prohibition. Uh, you know, it's debatable because the data is not perfect back then, but you know, we may have had either the highest or about the highest murder rate we've ever had in the United States was in 1932. You know, that's the last year of prohibition. Two years after mm-hmm. prohibition had ended, the murder rate in the United States had fallen by about 60%. See, I always think it's very, it's a racist on its face that the the alcohol prohibition ended because that was intolerable. But the drug prohibition, which affects a different demographic, as far as murder rates and crime rates just seems to be able to go on forever. So that's just, I, I, I would wonder if the statistics would bear that out, maybe worthy of research. But I have a question for you. Um, maybe we have time for one more story. I was horrified at how you were treated by, supposedly it sounds like this was a big, big operation, but some parents of a school shooting who, yeah, they lost their child at the Parkland uh, school shooting. And they went through a lot of time and effort to really arrange a hoax uh, that involved you. And the, when you look at the coverage of it, it was absolutely, it, it wasn't represented the way it seems to me. I, I was horrified that they did that to you. And the media seems to celebrate that's what they did. But can you tell yeah. us what the story no, a lot of the media lauded him for this. So uh, in early May or May, I got a phone call from a guy who claimed to be uh, the chairman of the board for a very large Internet-based uh, high school in Las Vegas. And he said that they had 2,000 graduating students and that the students and the faculty had asked that I be the keynote speaker for, uh, for the graduation. Uh, the school was called James Madison. I looked it up on the web. They had a nice website, uh, had, you know, lots of pictures, smiling pictures of students, testimonials, discussions about the types of classes and the teachers that they had. You know, I was flattered. I'd say, sure, I'm, I'm happy to go and do that. They offered to fly me down on a private jet. I said, you know, that seems excessive. You guys are talking about trying to save money on this type of thing. I can go and drive down. I'm in Montana. Uh, I'll give a talk. I've been talking to some friends of mine in Idaho to give a talk down there, and I'll just give a talk there on the way down. And uh, so, you know, I thought we had set it up. Uh, I was going to basically give a talk along the types of advice I give to my kids, you know, how to get a job, how to be successful. Anyway, uh, a few days before the event, I got a call saying that they wanted me to go and talk about the Second Amendment. And I said, well, you know, uh, I don't really feel comfortable doing that for a commencement address. One of my pet peeves over time has been that um, people bringing political stuff 
into commencement addresses. Everybody has to sit there, you know, and if they agree or disagree, why should they do it? It should be something that uplifts people, that everybody feels that they get something of benefit from. And he said, no, this was really important. Uh, the students had spent a lot of time during their senior year studying the Bill of Rights. And this is the reason why they had picked me. And I said, well, I guess I can spend part of my talk on that. And so they said, okay. And then I was told uh, the commencement was supposed to be on Saturday. I was told I had to get there a day earlier. I had to get there Friday morning. I said, well, that's going to be impossible. I have uh, this talk I've set up in Idaho. Uh, you know, there's like no way. It's like a 13-hour drive or something down there. Uh, I have this talk in the evening, and you want me there at like 10 in the morning. <laughs> you know, I have to drive all through the night. This is crazy. And uh, and he was begging me and pleading with me and telling me how important it was. They had set up a rehearsal, and I said, look, if you're worried about what I'm going to say exactly, I've already given you a written write-up of my talk, but I'll just tell you over the phone. He says, no, no, no. You know, we're really spending a lot of money on this. It's important for the school. Please help the school. Uh, you know, we're going to use this as a video to go and recruit students for the school. And I said, well, you know, I could try. So basically, I look, I, I, it'd be one thing if I was 20, okay? But <laughs> six. I'm 63, okay? And I said, you know, this is insane, driving all the way through the night so I can go and show up for this commencement address. And uh, the guy was calling me during the night, you know, like at two o'clock in the morning to check my progress. And, uh, uh, you know, to make matters worse, there were, a highway was ended up being closed. I had to backtrack, added about an extra four hours onto my trip. And, uh, Anyway, uh, I finally get there in the afternoon. Uh, I'm dead tired at this point. I can't tell you how tired I was. And um, the uh, so the guy meets me at the hotel I'm staying at, going to be staying at, and they take me over. Big setup. They must have had like 20 staffers there, drones flying, big TV cameras in front, banners for the school. And they said, you know, we want you just to kind of go through what you're going to say. We're going to have clips from this. And if, you know, we don't get a good shot tomorrow or whatever, you know, we can mix them together to make sure we really get a high quality video. And so I give a 15 minute address and um, they edit down the 15 minutes into one minute that they end up using that completely takes what I say out of context. So, for example, um, you and I, we've been talking about the Nick's background check system. And what I what I was saying was that uh, gun control advocates will fight you tooth and nail against what I said were reasonable fixes. So like we have these mistakes. There's no reason that 99% of the people who are trying to buy guns who are stopped are there for these false positives. There's a simple fix. All you have to do is have the federal government meet the same standards for doing background checks that private companies have to meet. You know, you go and talk to a private company and suggest that they do background checks on employees using roughly phonetically similar names and similar birthdays. They will look at you <laughs> like you're from Mars. Okay? Right. If, if private companies had an error rate that was 100th, 
the air right that the federal government has, they'd be sued out of existence. And with the racial impact, you can't right, do that. Exactly, exactly. And, um, and so, uh, but they cut it out to make it look like I was fighting against the reasonable changes that the gun control people oh, had. That is outrageous. And I was saying they were fighting against reasonable changes right. on oh the stuff. And uh, so, uh, and they've refused to this day to release the whole 15 minute video. They won't do it. And the, the thing is, the media, you know, 90% of the media didn't even talk to me, but even the media that did talk to me, uh, one of the things I always emphasize, I said, well, just, you don't need to take my word for this. Ask them for the video. Right. Tell them to go and show yeah. you the whole video on this thing. And, and the group would say no. And the, and the, you know, half the media or three quarters of even the ones that did talk to me wouldn't say that they refused to release the video. They would just say, Lot says this. The gun control group says that they did not deceptively edit the video, that everything there is what I said. And, uh, you know, it, it shouldn't have been that. They sh if I had done something like that to a gun control group where I had deceptively edited the video that's there, I guarantee you the media would come after me as saying, you know, Lot refuses to release the video. You know, it's obviously he has something to hide on this type of thing. But uh, you will search in vain for news stories. I mean, there's a couple that took him to task for it. That's for such a dirty people. trick. And I, I just want to read you one of the quotes. It was something like this that I saw and I, I didn't even understand the quote. And the guy said, if he had done a background check, he would have known that it wasn't a real school and it could have prevented this. How ironic. They said it was an Internet school. Right. And they set up a website. Like, what are you? Right. What more? Well, are you what supposed to, and you do? did. Right. What am I supposed to do? I've given thousands of talks over my life. OK, right. I, I've given, I don't know, uh, you know, a couple hundred talks at universities and schools. I've never had anything like this happen. What a terrible thing to do. Yeah, it's unreal. They so so you, this is you have had a lifetime of being abused like this, because I remember when I first got your book, I fell in love with it. More guns, less crime. That first one uh -huh. or that earlier one. And I was like looking at reviews and everything. And there was all this just all these hit pieces. And I thought, what the heck? And I looked and I would like actually check some of the research. And everything. I'm like, these are just lies like they were they was just totally untrue. And then when you look at your credentials and your experience, I mean, they they it's just slander. I'll give you one example that I remember. Uh, Time magazine ran a, a significant story on my book and uh, I spent a lot of time talking to the reporter. And I know he read the book. OK. And from the questions that he was asking and uh, when he wrote up his story, um, he was quoting uh, others who were uh, opposed to me, who were saying, well, you know, a lot didn't account for income. He didn't account for poverty. And I said, look, I called up the guy afterwards. I said, look, you read the book. You know, I counted for these things. You know, it'd be one thing to say, Lot didn't properly account for it. And I'd be happy to argue with him about it. As far as I know, I don't know how better to do this, but that's not what they said. They said, Lot didn't do this. And you know that that's not true. And so, you know, why did you just quote them uncritically as saying that? And he said, look, my job wasn't to go and be a referee 
you know, I quoted you and then I quoted them. He didn't call me up to get a quote to respond to them on it after he talked. to. But that's them. not just a quote. That's a you know, that looks like it's a factual right, verify. You know, that's not that's exactly the, the point I made to him. I said, look, people don't believe you put in something that you thought was false. Right. And so the fact that you put it in there is just quoting them makes it seem like you think that that's a correct claim to make there. So who knows? But it's just, uh, um, uh, you know, it's just. It's unreal. It's terrible. They, they, so, they're so bad. They're so, I, so mad. They, they, sorry. Here in the way they do that, they're, they're like a gun for the, the gun activists, the gun control activists. They, they act yes, as a weapon. They're a loaded gun. Right. So the I haven't read your new book. Can you maybe that's where reader listeners might want to start to see your most current work or what? where do you want to direct people to follow what you do? Well, uh, well, our website is crimeresearch.org, crimeresearch.org. The most recent book I have is Gun Control Myths. It came out uh, last half of last year. Uh, it goes through 45 different myths that you constantly see in the media about guns. And uh, I don't know, I think it's a good place to start. People get a, a pretty good idea about how a lot of the things that they hear, you know, everything we were talking earlier about defensive gun uses uh, would be one example about that. You know, what is newsworthy isn't necessarily accurate reflects what actually happens there. But I look at things like how does the United States compare to other countries in terms of mass public shootings? Uh, you know, uh, it, discussions about everything from suicides to, you know, the point that you were raising earlier that we never answered about what's the difference between homicides and murders. Most people think that those two are the same things. I mean, most but, of them argue for more guns yeah, because they're uh, defensive. Yeah. Well, the thing, right. Well, the thing is homicides are murders plus justifiable homicides. And it's never really been obvious to me why you want to, as you said yourself, why you want to lump those two things yeah. together they seem like very different things there. But I'll just give you one example uh, that I go through in the book, and that is um, very few countries report murder data. Almost all countries just report homicide data. Uh, and so when they make comparisons across country, the United States has an unusually large amount of justifiable homicides. And so it makes us look relatively worse. There are lots of other things to take into account too, but I'm just saying this is one little point that's there. And the other thing that they do when they make comparisons across countries, it's virtually always firearm homicides rather than total homicides. And the problem is only about half the countries report firearm homicide data. And, and guess which ones report the firearm homicide data? They're the ones that have relatively low homicide rates. And so, you know, if you look at Total homicides, the United States is below the average and below the median in terms of total homicides. In terms of firearm homicides, we're pretty high. And that's what you see if you look at the New York Times, the Washington Post, or USA Today, their graphs or their stories are always in terms of firearm homicides. Um, they don't tell you that half the countries don't report firearm. You know, we're in the United States, we're used to every sort of crime data broken down. Most countries aren't don't go into the type of detail that we have. And and they, you don't know 
that the countries with at the top in terms of, of uh, total homicides, they're not reporting uh, their firearm homicide data. And so it makes us look relatively high just because you're reporting something that, uh, you know, uh, is selective in terms of who's reporting the data. Well, that sounds like the exact kind of information I need to answer arguments because I mean, all sorts of things like that. People come up and they want to make those arguments, but I, I feel like they there's really so never much, stand up to scrutiny. You know, working in this area for decades, there's so many things. People hear data and they don't know what it means. So, for example, I'll just give you a simple thing, and that is uh, you hear acquaintance murder. Most people think acquaintance murders are people that have emotional relationships with each other. Yeah. Probably the largest category of acquaintance murders are rival gang members. Oh my gosh. <laughs> <laughs> Here I am thinking the guy sitting on my couch, like waiting for my kids to come downstairs. It's like, oh my gosh, there's an acquaintance well, in the living room. <laughs> that, that's another thing. You know, 90% of adult murderers have an adult violent criminal record. You should be more, you know. But yes. almost as high of juvenile murders have a juvenile violent criminal record. The people you should be concerned about are people who have significant violent criminal records, not yeah, your like, uh, person. They, I read an article that had said um, more guns does not mean more murder. It was a Harvard Review article. It's like the only thing that like came up for air and all of besides your research that I can never really put my finger on with big stats. But they would say that would say like the suicide stats would be exactly the same across the board. No matter what you did, you were never going to. Well, we, um, met, we mentioned gun bans on murders, okay, and homicides. Show me one place that's banned either all handguns or all murders or all, all guns and seen suicide rates go down. People switch to other types of methods to go and commit suicides. But and we could talk for hours about this. I have a feeling I'm making you late for your kids. Yes, that's why I lost. They started texting me. <laughs> <laughs> I was like, oh, my gosh. OK, never mind. I was just engrossed well, I, in the conversation. I hope, well, we can continue this another time. Oh, that would be wonderful. Good. Well, first, yeah. I'm going to get that second book and I'll I'll read that and I'll have a whole full quiver full of arrows for for the next for my next that sounds fun i appreciate that uh thank you so much so this is the the good and great mr john lott thank you so much i can't wait to get gun control myths i highly recommend more guns less crime uh the crime prevention research center which you founded has is a great resource as well we thank you so so much for your time really appreciate it i know you're a busy guy no thank you very much i appreciate it